Hi folks, and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. You know what I'm about to ask you, and I know you probably want to hit that forward 30 second button, but please don't. The Tortoise Shack is struggling, along with many other media outlets, only they have ads and sponsors and we don't. Only they're part of big networks that have big corporate owners. We are not. We are completely independent and we rely entirely on you guys to support us and keep the microphones on and the conversations that you love to listen to happening. So if you're one of the thousands of people who are listening, please consider clicking the link at the top of the podcast you're listening to right now that says patreon.com forward slash tortoise and doing that little bit of activism, the easiest bit of activism you can do on a monthly basis. Throw us the price of a cup of tea and a scone and know that you're helping a left-leaning, progressive, independent podcast platform limp on and still platform the conversations that lots and lots and lots of people are listening to. And you do get a ton of additional content for that. And all of the podcasts are available entirely plea-free. So you don't have to listen to me beg and beg, as you know, I must. So one more time, patreon.com forward slash tortoise Come on board, join the community that we've built and help us keep going. Thanks for the support. Thanks for listening. I am going to stop rabbiting on. Enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. My name is Tony Groves and folks... It would be remiss of us not to comment, and I mean generally comment on some of the stuff that has been going on and has been happening now over a number of years. It would be ignorant of us to pretend that the events of the last few days and indeed weeks are not tied to, you know, events over months, years as we go back. And we've saw, we've watched the slow decline, the drift, the slow process of slipping further to the right and where we watch things that were maybe caught, taught upon us couldn't say that in polite society. You couldn't do that. You couldn't actually have those views. Maybe the the respectable people wouldn't do that. The idea that we could have this inf- that this views would be held and not just held, but actually platformed and given air and and then given equal airtime and given positions whereby the people then say to you, we have to debate them. And if we debate them, we'll defeat them in the marketplace of ideas because that's how that's how we'll deal with them. And we've been watching this drip, drip, drip for a number of years now, especially since we started the Tortoise Shack, whatever, six and a half, seven years ago now at this stage. And someone who has seen this from his uh, the comfort of his couch in Sweden, he's seen it now in Ireland, but he has seen it before. Is is uh, journalist Philip O'Connor who's joining me now. Philip, it's great to see you. How are you keeping? I'm majestic, Tony. Uh, I'm not moving as fast as your intro to this podcast always does anymore. I'm getting old. But uh, yeah, no, keeping busy over here and keeping one eye over my shoulder as well, Tony, and watching what's going on there. And as you say, there's an awful lot that sort of resonated with me when we were sort of talking off air about maybe having a conversation about this, about the situation in Ireland and the way that I've kind of been saying for a long time, been kind of like Cassandra, like the Canadian, the coal mine, tweeting away here going, lads, watch out for this because it's fucking coming. And if you don't know, it's going to get you before you realise it. And I'm afraid that seems to be what's happening in Ireland now. And unfortunately, it's moving faster and faster and faster. Can I, can we break it up into a couple of sections? Because you've seen this, like, I mean, listeners who would have heard you on the podcast before be well aware of the, uh, of the fact that you've spoke about the creep to the right in, in the Nordics, in Sweden. We've seen it in Finland recently. We've seen these creep to the right. And you were, but you were screaming at us going, lads, you're no different. It's happening. It's, it's, it's playing out. I'm watching it. But let's break it into categories before we get to, the people say protesting about migrants in in Inch or what happened the other day in Sandwich Street. 
let's talk about the politics. Let's talk about the 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 things that I as I framed it there earlier. The things that you didn't think, you know, uh, you'd hear from a Taoiseach, You know, where where he he's repeating what what would be essentially far right talking points about getting firm or firmer on migration when we're already bloody firm. And the only the only thing we actually adhere to is the international protections that we're supposed to do. And we don't even adhere to them because we have 560 people on the streets in tents. So so let's talk about the politics first. Yeah, so I suppose what sort of interested me, Tony, was if you look at sort of, you can't take a cookie cutter to these situations because each of these nations are different. But then again, there are things that are the same, right? So in Scandinavia, you have two things. One, you've had a very sort of positive history of migration. Going back to the post-war period, Sweden didn't pay, take part in the Second World War. Its industry was intact, its forest was intact, and essentially uh, Sweden was able to rebuild Europe or help rebuild Europe by building tools and vehicles and sending timber and doing all these things that no other country was in a position to do. Norway, Finland, Denmark were also, they weren't among the great sufferers. They weren't destroyed in the way that the low countries were or Germany itself was or France was, right? And what happened there was a wave of, uh, let's call it controlled immigration, right? Yes, uh, Arbeter is what they call them in um, in the Nordic languages, and it usually means guest workers. And they came from the Balkans, and they came from Greece, and they came from southern Italy, and in, at times from North Africa as well. And that was a situation where there was always resistance, shall we say. There was always a certain amount of people who really didn't want strangers in this country because, you know, the word unvetted is bandied around, etc, etc. They didn't like strangers. It's that simple, right? But because these people were being brought in, and it was such a prosperous place, like the post-war period of social democracy from 1945 to the late 1970s in Scandinavia is pretty much unrivaled anywhere in the Western world for how prosperous those countries became. But when everybody had everything, when everybody had a cradle-to-grave welfare state, when you didn't have to pay to go to the dentist or the doctor, when you had maternity and paternity leave, you had school lunches, you had absolutely everything your heart desired, it wasn't a problem. Now, at some point in the 1980s, uh, when Olaf Palme was sort of stuttering towards the end of his political career before his murder, uh, we started to get this sort of, you know, uh, regulatory control thing where lobbyists were getting in. Things were starting to get um, freed up a little bit. The free market was beginning to take more and more space. And of course, it was almost done by stealth because people here really didn't want it. But it's like, oh, no, there'll be more choice and it'll drive down prices and it'll be better and better and better. And then the more that crept in through the 1990s, and now when you look around two decades or three decades after that, pretty much all of that is gone, right? There's nothing of Sweden left that Olaf Palme would recognise if he got out of his grave about eight kilometres from where I'm standing or sitting and, and was to walk around Sweden again. He just wouldn't recognise it. And with that, the reason that the far right never got a grip here in the 70s and never got a grip in the 80s, briefly, by, you know, two, three, four percent in terms of votes in the 90s, but the reason that they were able to double their vote in every election for about 2000 onwards is because that the welfare state was being sort of dismantled at the same pace as they were rising. And this is the vacuum in which things like Inch and Sandwich Street and transphobia and all these other things happen, right? Yeah. Because all of a sudden now, places where there is actually no need for us to be competing for resources find ourselves doing it. And the easiest thing to do in that situation, Tony, is to turn on the stranger. Yeah, I, I always think I always uh, think of the strangers' case. Um, the uh, I famously, um, I think it was uh, obviously it's a Shakespeare co-wrote it, but it, it, it's the you know w- 
you know, go get, go you to go you to France. What would happen to you? Kind of thing because because the, the, the mob are calling for the death of the strangers. You know, yeah. get the what are they doing amongst us? Um, so you know, it's this isn't this isn't new, Philip. But what's new, I put it to you, is that as the public sphere has shrunk, you know, what you refer to the welfare state, you know, the public sphere has shrunk. What has actually happened is a lot of people have found it politically advantageous to express views that peddle, uh, that pander to these views rather than actually address the underlying issue. So, you know, it goes back to this week alone where we've seen a uh, allegedly uh, tensions amongst the coalition in, in Ireland about you know, we want more guards. And, you know, and you're like, oh, well, if I'm having a mental health problem, I want a, a mental health professional, a social worker, or a community officer, a community development officer knocking on my door. I don't want a guard. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you actually, but if you admit that it's the other things you need, then you've yeah. admitted that that you've created the failures. And this is um so many, it's much easier, as you say, to buy into that narrative that the problem is the other, um, whether it be, a trans person, and they're not going to stop a trans people, folks. They're going to start, you know, going through the LGBT community. Then it's, you know, people of color. Uh, we've already seen the rise of anti-Semitism that we haven't seen in in a long time. It's 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 now cool again, you know. Um, but politically, this is actually deemed to be possibly politically advantageous, and 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 it, the, the the greatest example of it is probably the Brexit referendum, mm. you know, and. But we've seen this over and over again over the last few years, right? I think I told you before, Tony, I was in France uh, where Shakespeare didn't send me there now, but I happened to be there when Brexit took place. And I was going to bed in the town of Lille, uh, the city of Lille uh, that night. And I was with some English people and they were going, oh, this is never going to happen. This is never going to happen. And I said, by the time we get to the breakfast table tomorrow morning, Britain will have left the EU. Britain will have decided to leave the EU. And they went, you're mad. And I was the only one not drinking. And they were going, you're out of your mind. And we got to the breakfast table the next morning, and sure enough, the exit polls were saying that the British had voted to leave the EU, right? This is not an accident, right? And hindsight, I know, is twenty twenty vision. But if you look at how politics has gone, not just in Ireland or in the UK or in Scandinavia, but around the world in this time, these things are happening, right? The Overton window is shifting. What can be discussed? Everything is just going back further and further and further to the right. We had a period there... Uh, the post-war period in Scandinavia was won. There was a brief period under Tony Blair, who was basically a snake oil salesman, where we thought, you know, well, here's, here comes social democracy, and we can actually have everything. We can have this great, cool, free market. We can have fame, and we can all be millionaires and billionaires, and we can have these great state services. But of course, that wasn't the truth, right? But you were basically being sold a lie on those things as well. The same thing happened in Ireland when Bertie Ahern proclaimed himself to be a social democrat, when in fact he was the greatest free marketeer of them all, and then the bubble blew up and under Brian Cowan and the rest of them, and it all went to shit, right? But politically, this is actually, this suits an awful lot of people, right? And what annoys me really in Ireland is the silence, right? So when something like this happens, and we're just about the 10th anniversary, I don't know if you remember this or not, Tony, um, about 10 years ago, almost to the day, uh, I was at the World Ice Hockey Championship final in Globen in Stockholm, the big golf ball building. Right, there, mm-hmm. Sweden were playing Switzerland. They beat them, I think it was 6-2 in the final. And I got a text message to say that there's chaos in Hoosby. Hoosby is the next suburb along the underground line from where I am. I could walk there in maybe 15 minutes, right? And what started there was five nights of rioting by young, lo- mostly local young men, right? Because about a week and a half previously, a 69-year-old Portuguese man had been shot dead by police. And the police had lied about what had happened. They said that he had survived. He hadn't died on sight. All that was nonsense. The local community asked to meet the police. 
The police didn't meet them on the Wednesday. By Sunday night, they were born in cars in Hoosby. And it went on for five nights. And Sweden was all over the global news, right? And at that time, what struck me as being different there then to what's happening in Ireland now in terms of vigilantism, in terms of people taking things into their own hands, was there's an absolute vacuum of any sort of leadership whatsoever from the Irish government. There is no line in the sand. There's there's this wishy-washy thing of, you know, oh, well, you know, they, they might be right, they might be wrong, who can tell, right? There's nobody coming out and saying, this is fucking wrong, right? And if you fast forward there, that was 2013 in Sweden. If you fast forward to 2015 or so, there's a former Prime Minister here called Frederick Reinfeldt, who's new, now the head of the Football Association, and he would have been extremely right-wing politically and economically, but he was also the one who said during 2015, when you had the, the wave of migration from places like Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq, North Africa, to Europe, 163,000 people came into Sweden in 2015, and rather than Reinfeldt saying, oh, you know, well, if you're going to blockade that, work away, lads, go ahead, count them on the buses and blockade the place they're staying in, he instead asked people to open their hearts. It was pretty much the death of him politically, but still to this day, he will tell you that that was the right thing to do. And what really is, it's it's absolutely striking the lack of leadership in Ireland around all these things, around homelessness, around the economy, around the housing crisis as it is, around the fuel and energy crisis that was and that will be again this coming winter, you know, and that's the thing that's absolutely striking. You have to ask yourself, who benefits from this? Um, well, okay, you've you've given me a lot there, but I want to unpack a little bit on the on the comments. So there's been, you know, it's it's not unfair to say that we have ministers on the record saying that this wasn't appropriate, but they can understand it. You've had ministers, uh, you've had members of government unwilling to say whether it was right or wrong. You've had ministers actually go to attend and talk to these groups that are are carrying out the blockades now. And once you start to do when you placate and you appease and you because appeasement is not going to actually resolve this. Now, we can unpack it, and you know this, Philip, we could unpack it and say, well, what are we doing about 66,000 holiday homes in the state? What are we doing about vacancy? What are we doing about dereliction? But they don't want to have those conversations because then they have to talk about capital, the interests of, of private capital. And, uh, exactly. and, and, and and they don't want to have those conversations. So they'd rather say, you know, let's get a, a float a flotella on in, into Cork Harbour and throw a lot of refugees onto this mega barge. And it is it is all of a piece because I saw only today the Taoiseach saying that he was alarmed by the low home home ownership rates in Ireland. And you're thinking every five years that he's been in government and he's been in government 13 he's knocked 10 years off the ability to, of social mobility so it used to be a case where a 24 year old you know had moved out and then a 29 year old was buying their first home we're now at 35 to 39 and now 39 plus before they buy your first home so he successfully moved it along with his policies so if anybody's alarmed he needs it like for a man who i believe to be an egotist he needs to look in the mirror this time and understand that he did this. And this is all related to the situation, as you say. If you're fighting for resources, it's easier to blame the other. I I, I posted the video from Emmett Kirwan again for about the 15th time where he talks about the fact that this is not divide and conquer. This is divide and rule. Yeah. And But let's bring it on to the next section that we wanted to talk about. The media's role in this. And the media have a really important role in this, Philip. It's it's obvious. They do. And once again, they are singularly unprepared for what it is they're doing and what it is they're coming, what it is that's coming, right? 
So a good while ago, I can't remember, it's a few years ago now, but I wrote to D Forbes, who's the Director General of RTE, and I said, look, this is coming down the line, right? If you want me to come over and talk about this, because I've been talking right about these things for 20 years, Tony, both in terms of Scandinavia, but also in terms of Ireland and England in the US. I've talked to gun nuts all over America. I've talked to these, um, you know, the what you call them, the various different militia groups that are over there. I've talked to them here. I've spoken to Nazis over here, uh, to people who've made their own bombs, this kind of stuff, right? And I've also spoken to academics and journalists who've written about this and who studied this kind of thing, right? And th- it's a very complex, very, very difficult subject, right? And what we're seeing is a situation where people are being sent out to report on these things and they just don't have the tools to do so, right? Now, many years ago, I was locked in the trunk of a car and driven around Canary Wharf in London as part of what they call hostile environment training. The reason I did that was not because it's a lot of fun. I'm very tall, so it's fucking not. But it was because for any insurance, uh, for me to go into any conflict zone, any war zone, Ukraine, even back in 2012, was considered a possible conflict zone. And I was there to cover language protests back then. And I had to do these things for that, right? But we were also educated in how to approach these things, right? And it's it, there's nothing that you can do in, you know, in any journalism course, really, that prepares you for the modern landscape of these things, right? By osmosis, the right and the far right are sort of learning these lessons from one another, from 4chan, from 8chan, from the Donald Trump presidential campaign, from post-Putin Russia, all all these kinds of things. They're doing the same things. They're playing for the same playbook. They're pushing the same buttons. And to understand that takes more than just going to college and getting a journalism degree or getting a degree and then getting a master's in journalism and going out and reporting on these things. You have to understand the dynamics of these things. And they don't. And RTE don't. And D Forbes never even replied to me. And do you know what? That's grand. I don't care. I'm fucking nobody, right? But did she do anything about that? Did the RTE newsroom do anything about that? And I would have to say, not just RTE, let's not pick on RTE. No, no. But when, but when I look at the newspapers and the radio stations and everything else and all I don't think anybody did anything about it. And now it's too late because now all of a sudden you find them trying to ask questions of people. In many cases, they shouldn't even be talking to the first place, right? But everything, every single well, thing well, is well, A lot of those people that you're saying they shouldn't be speaking to in the first place, when you were calling it out, and, and I recall, I think it was a Sunday show we had a couple of years ago where we were joined by Lilith, who was a member of the trans community. Yes. I think, I think, you, I think you were there, and I think we were talking, and Mick Clifford dropped in for a few minutes. Mm. And we pleaded with him to stop, um, you know, having this kind of mentality of, debate them, hear them out, you know, we can we can kind of draw this out. And and I, this is not to pick on Mick, this is just an example of 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 how we created this this monster. And like we were tickling the chin of of the of the monster thinking that look, you know, if we if we're pally enough with them, it'll be grand. But as you said earlier, the Overton window has sucked us to, to the point whereby and it's it, the phrase I've heard and it's it's quite brilliant, is that many of the self declared fa- um centrists, sorry Fraudian slip. Many of the self-declared centrists are now members of the status quo um, uh, maintenance crew, and yeah. the status quo is very definitely to the right when it comes to these issues. And and when you see it now, particularly in, if we want to talk about media, let's 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 be honest here. There has been a role of you know let's have let's have um, put people to a certain level whereby we're having we have to platform them as equals. I don't understand how you have to platform someone who holds, you know, what are uh, abhorrent and and clearly anti-human, you know, human rights uh, views on the same level as someone who just wants to exist. 
So, you know, there can be members of, of any minority community. Take your pick. And we seem to have this false balance that we have to have. And we got that wrong in Ireland so badly. We saw it during things like during repeal. We saw it during, during marriage equality. And the media actually then, when they still, when the public didn't vote, you know, in, in with the more radical elements on the conservative side, they thought, well, we must be doing something right. But we haven't. We've emboldened those voices because now they're household names. Now they're now we're at the stage where one of them is suing a, a, a you know, successfully sued a a, a, a reproductive choices he- um, activist for eight grand. And he'll probably be in a Sunday paper this weekend. So the thing about, like Mick's article a little while ago was almost too perfect because I, I actually hate to sit here saying I told you so, right? But, you know, and Mick is a brilliant journalist and Mick is a great writer and he can absolutely make his own arguments, right? But he was wrong. And he unfortunately, he's never going to admit that he got that wrong, that these people are extremely dangerous, right? And the idea that they could just be sort of fobbed off by saying, you know, there's some fringe group, like that thing in uh, in Monty Python years ago about the People's Front of Judea and the Judean People's Front and that mm-hmm. kind of thing, right? It's very funny at the time, but it betrays an arrogance and a self-importance that doesn't reflect the reality, right? And there's two things that really you shouldn't be doing with the far right and how they work, right? And I'll get on to the Swedish example in a second because it's it's an actual, it's a textbook example of it, right? One is you can't platform them because, and I've said to you and I've said to many people, but for me, the human rights and dignity of other people are not subjects for discussion. They are absolute. I'm not having that discussion. I'm not engaging with it on social media. I'm not engaging with it on TV or on radio. Just no, right? And that just kills that for me. Somebody else can go ahead and do it if they want. I'm going to disagree with them over it, but I'm not fucking doing it, right? The other thing you cannot do, uh, which is what Mick did, was dismiss them, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you dismiss them, you take your eye off the ball, right? So 20-odd years ago, the Sweden Democrats here were a fringe party, right? Started by neo-Nazis. In their first committee, there was a man who'd actually served in the Waffen-SS, right? Their roots are firm. No matter what anybody tries to tell you, their roots are firmly, firmly, firmly in neo-Nazism. Their previous uh, name of the party was Keep Sweden Swedish, right? These are fascists and these are neo-Nazis, Tony. Now, they were very unsuccessful because basically they were still boot boys at the time. Along came a guy called Jimmy Orkesson and a bunch of fellas from the south of Sweden and they were the, the first in the party to swap the, the bother boots and the, the bomber jackets for suits. And they got their hair cut and they covered up their tattoos and they started to talk about things like culture rather than Judaism, right? They started to talk about things like culture and the great things in Swedish culture rather than LGBTQ plus people. And that's where they started, right? And all of a sudden, when they started to behave in a way that was sort of house-trained, people started to say, okay, let's debate them in the marketplace of ideas. Let's bring them in for the code. No, 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 we won't, we won't, you know, they, they won't be given any influence or anything, but it surely can't hurt to hear them out, right? Mm. It's a fucking disaster. So by when they came in to the Swedish political system and when the Swedish media invited them in with a warm hand and a bunch of flowers, they started to grow literally exponentially from 2% to 4% to 8% to 16%. They're currently somewhere between the second and third biggest party in the country, right? We fast forward to the election last year. Magdalena Andersson and the Social Democrats, the left in Sweden have an awful lot to answer for as well. They lurched crazily to the right in an attempt to retain power alongside the Greens, right? And a terrible minority government that they had recently. And Magdalena Andersson was an absolute shame of a person to have from the left as a prime minister. But it was better than the alternative. The election was so tight that the centre-right led by Ulf Christensen, a man who told a Holocaust survivor that he would never govern with the Sweden Democrats, 
essentially is governing with the support of the Sweden Democrats. They are not members of the coalition. That's the moderate party here. The Christian Democrats are so-called Christian Democrats, the so-called liberals, but they are 100% dependent on the Sweden Democrats for their existence there as a government. Okay. Mm. What does that mean? That means that the Sweden is currently being governed uh, according to a document called the TIDA agreement, right? It's signed in a place called TIDA here. And it's essentially the Sweden Democrats election manifesto to the point where they want a discussion around preparing for Swexit, Sweden leaving the European Union, right? And they're basically hostages to the whole thing. Now, when Kistesson eventually said that, okay, I'm going to do this, I'm going to talk to these people, don't mind the fact that I lied to a Holocaust survivor, let's get on with it. And don't mind that these people are so-called Christian Democrats and so-called liberals, let's bring them in. And what has essentially happened in a very short space of time is that a neo-Nazi tail is now wagging the Swedish dog. And there's no way back now, right? This is it. It's over now, Tony, right? Like the fight that had happened, you know, for maybe 50 years prior to that, that's gone. There's no putting this genie back in the bottle. And it's an absolute disaster to the point where today uh, I was reading today that uh, the Justice Department at the moment is looking at, you know, the way you have to be of a certain legal age before you can be punished as an adult, right? Yeah. And they're looking at reducing that to the age of 12. Right, because basically the Sweden Democrats want to, or the Sweden Democrats want to get a gang crime because gang gang crime is basically brown young fellas with no future. That's who's involved in this kind of thing, broadly put, right? Mm. And they want to get at them and they want to make their lives as miserable as possible. And that's where we are in Olaf Palme, Sweden, the great social democratic paradise in the year of our Lord, twenty twenty three, and it's gone to shit completely. All because these mugs were allowed to put on a suit, comb their hair, and they were brought in from the cold when they should have been left out there. Yeah, no, and and I I want to just bring it back to to Ireland for, for a moment, Philip, if you if you'll bear with me, just just to remind listeners, and again, check out always always check out Shamim Malikmian's reporting the Dublin Enquirer, but that seventeen year old from Afghanistan whose father was killed by the Taliban. You know, he was left in a tent on the side of the street and he took and people got together and helped him take the case to say that, you know, he's a minor. Now, we know from the reporting Shamim has done time and time again, we've done that. I'm going to call it straight racist thing where we said, oh, he looks more than 17. Let's have a look at his teeth. Let's have a look at his stomach. Let's have a look at his teeth again. Let's have a look at his. uh, And this is the stuff that's been happening to minorities in Ireland over and over. And, you know, I, I, I. I spoke with an editor in an Irish um, newspaper a couple of days ago and I recommended that they actually, before they put out another thing that was garbage, that they do two things. They read Ireland's obligation under the international protection and then they actually talk to Shamim. And I don't think they took me seriously. Um, you know, and it just shows you because they, they have this, there is, there is an unwillingness to say we were wrong. We got this wrong, you know. But, but this is the thing, Tony. If you look at the the Irish Times uh, withdrawing that article that was written and sort of put in there by some AI journalist, something, something, Cortez, something like that, right? And, and there's been dead silence ever since, right? There's all, oh, you know, well, it's very important that we have a load of diversity of opinion, etc., cetera, et cetera, and then just complete silence, right? We're, we got that wrong, we're sorry, right? And then just nothing, right? The problem is not the AI thing. The problem is not this, you know, the, the, it's the due diligence around who is this person? Why are they placing this? Why are you publishing this garbage to begin with, right? Because they, cause they wanted to publish that garbage because they were chasing. Exactly, right? Like, I refer to a certain Irish newspaper as the Gammon Gazette because everything they write is basically to, to appeal to Gammon, right? And there's none of that kind of thing. What you were saying there about uh, teeth and knee joints are also a very effective measure, apparently, if you're trying to guess the age of somebody. This was all being done here seven or eight years ago, right? In Sweden 
reading it, especially with young Afghan lads, right? One thing I'd like to say to you, Tony, is especially the tent scene. You brought up that young Afghan lad in the tent, right? I, I want to tell you now that somebody will be killed in the near future if this doesn't stop, right? Yeah. And I'll tell you how I know that because the same things have happened here, right? In 2014 in Hergdalen on the south side of town, migrants were burned out of their tents. One of them died, right? Somebody who actually came, it was a terrible story, somebody who came to retrieve a person who had died in a similar incident, the father of one of the victims came here, had a heart attack and died, and they ended up having to bring the two of them home, costing the family twice as much money. This is going to happen because these people have been in emboldened well, and continue yeah, to be emboldened. That right? brings us to the third part of what we're going to talk about. Yep. Civil society. The man on the street. The idea that, you know, we keep hearing local people have concerns and yet when you look at the footage and the videos you see the same four or five heads that aren't local people. <laughs> you see the self-appointed spokespersons for this. You see them, you know, infiltrating these things. As you said earlier in this conversation, they know the playbook. They use it. And they, you know, and it's, it, we've seen, we've been warning you this for years. They will stand, they will say, you care about homelessness? I care about homelessness. And then they say to you after, I stood beside you for homelessness. Now you come and stand beside me because these, uh, this, this rape gang are coming. Mm. And, and we get to the point whereby, we're radicalizing people and it gets to the, it, it, it leaves us in a situation whereby we now have a government or politicians. And I will also say there's a lot of ineffective people on the opposition's bench. Sinn Féin currently outside of a really good statement, I will say by Ono Brin, currently are the dog that hasn't barked recently. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's a fair comment, Philip. Um, they've been the dog that hasn't barked recently. Uh, and, and. You know, but what it comes down to when you see, you know, take the lead from Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael and and, and um, the Greens and they spend more time. I'm going to give it, I'm sorry for this digression, but I can't help it. Uh, uh, Green Party Senator, Eamon Ryan appointed Senator Roisin Garvey, you know, said, I can't say who's right and who's wrong. She also had a thing, she also has a history where she said, you know, don't use big words when you're talking to travellers. She so this is these are all in the public domain. We know this. This is factual. Um, but only a few weeks ago at the Ireland for All rally, the Greens got upset because people weren't weren't happy with them there. And the Greens said, "How dare you say we can't attend an anti-racism rally?" And the point being made by activists on the day was not that we don't. It wasn't that we were saying who can't attend, but your government, you know, were were supporting a two-tier. Um, system whereby, you know, Ukrainian uh, re refugees, for want of a better word, arrive because they're never treated as refugees. They get their PPS number, they can work, they can, they have access to all our social services immediately. If you arrive in from Afghanistan and you end up camping at the IPO office in Dublin, they turn around to you and they say, if we offered you um, a cupboard and you say no, you're no longer, no longer homeless. You're, you've, you've, your need has been met. There's very different. So we don't even have a two-tier system anymore. We'd have a three or four-tier system. And we go back to what's happening then. When you send that message to members of the public, and I've seen them emboldened, Philip, and you've seen this, from certain right-wing media outlets, which, by the way, we told you also a few years ago, stop mentioning these right-wing media outlets in your general reporting. Stop giving them stop giving them authenticity. And you did it. I, I, the Irish Times were murdered for mentioning the 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 um, the Fisher Price, my first fascist um, organization that 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 used to be ca uh, Catholic Youth or whatever they're called. Right? You helped bring them in, and now what you've done is. They are actually gloating. They wrote a piece a few, a few, about 
two months ago where they were saying, listen to what Leo Varadkar said. They were our talking points. The, the, the government are, ca- are catching up with us. And that emboldens people to the point, and really disappointingly, where you see people who I stood together with for water protests and other marches now sharing those talking points now. And now we are losing the battle on the streets, Philip. Well, you see, this is the thing, Tony, and that's why it's so important that when you're doing these things, reporting on these things, you have to ask yourself what it is you're doing. Who is it you're talking to? Who are you like? Whose words are you saying in journalism and media? Who are you repeating? Who are you giving a platform to? And who is not being heard? Right. And these are the things that you know. And again, that AI story with the Irish Times, not that it had anything to do with AI. Why? Why are you allowing people to do this without due diligence, right? And it's when you create that, the far right doesn't care what we think of them, right? And I'll t- explain to you what I mean in a second, right? But they don't, as long as we're saying or talking about the things that they want us to talk about, they are winning, right? The Sweden Democrats never gave a fuck about me criticizing them on radio or TV. They were just happy that I was talking about them personally by name naming their party right because for them there's no such thing as bad publicity right but i wanted to move on to one thing there tony and that's what's been happening now pretty much post-covid but it's been happening more and more in places like east wall we've seen it we've seen it uh, in dublin southwest we've seen it in various different places and there's a whole load of arsons that have gone completely unreported in buildings that have been uh, b- b- prepared for refugees and international protection that uh, people seeking international protection and it's just been m- burned m- down mr anti-race uh, mi- sorry mr anti-immigrant himself, uh, migrant himself, Peter Casey had a place that was supposed to be, to uh, accommodate Ukrainians. Um, are burnt out this week. Yeah, and I mean, like you know, I'd hate to give credit to Peter Casey after we treated travellers in the presidential election, but uh, he did apparently say that he wasn't going to make a profit out of that. Like you know, but uh, so we give him the benefit of the doubt. But what you've essentially created, or what has essentially been created. Uh, is a mob mentality, right? Now, that that's actually a psychological term that's been used, right? And the reason, the, one of the reasons that I was interested in having this conversation with you is because it's the 10-year anniversary of those riots in Hoosby, right? And I studied that at the time because I wanted to understand the dynamics of what was going on, right? And I, I remember a lot of it from the hostile environment training, right? And I remember the guys who were training me at that time in London way back then, can't even remember what year it was, But they were saying that for violence to happen in a crowd, it takes very, very few. They said they estimated between 5 and 10% of those who are present being prepared to be violent, but they depend on the tacit acceptance of the other 90%, right? Now, on top of that, you have a number of factors, right? You have the individualization, right? Which means that you're, you're part of a crowd so you don't feel... You know, that's, it's on me. You know, I just, I'm just part of this group. The identity thing where you share something with them, whatever emotions they whip up, whether that be on Hill 16 watching the dubs or, you know, outside a hotel an inch, right? Whatever emotions they whip up, all of that is magnified, right? Just the acceptability, right? What is acceptable behavior here? And now it appears that, you know, counting people on buses, or that, uh, you know, sitting outside blockading a, a business, that's all of a sudden acceptable to these people who are there, right? That makes it acceptable. Anonymity is another one. You can be anonymous. There's the diffusion of responsibility where you don't have to take responsibility for anything. And the larger that crowd or group becomes, the more, the less of an individual you become and the more you think that you don't have any responsibility for what happens. And this links back to what I was saying about what happens now when somebody dies, because somebody will die. That's just the logical conclusion of this. These things only stop when they meet resistance, right? And this is a, goes back to criminology as well. If you talk to any criminologist, a criminologist they will say that 
If I go out and steal a pencil and nobody stops me, then it's easier for me to go out and to steal something bigger and steal something bigger and steal something bigger until I'm robbing a bank, right? That's the basic theory behind it, right? Only when I meet resistance is there a chance, not a guarantee, is there a chance that this behaviour can be stopped. And what we're seeing at the moment with the lack of action from the Gardaí, with the lack of leadership from politicians and government in particular, there is no resistance. So that's why we're seeing new iterations of this popping up all over the place. And if that blockade an inch was lifted tomorrow, it's only going to be a matter of 24 hours before these people pop up somewhere else and start doing something similar because there is no resistance. I'm terrified. I spoke to a member of the government today. Today, I spoke to them about the my fears for another one of these centres that is that is going to be not too far from me and the idea that we need to be acting now to try and do that and you know what is funny I got more I got more feedback and more support when I spoke to someone like Dean Scurry in uh, in Ballymun about let's how, let's uh, let's make sure we kind of you know meet this before it happens let's try and let's try and address that so communities can make the difference when if people act quicker but that's not the problem that's not it shouldn't come on my shoulders as a, as a lowly bloody mop-haired podcaster who 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 rants every now and then it should be the position of the state where they're going to do this let, let me interrupt you there tony right it is absolutely your responsibility and it is my responsibility and it's the responsibility of everything of everybody to contribute whatever they can it might be time it might be ignorance it might be ignoring them it might be just letting them get on with their lives right to make sure that this can happen in a safe way holly cairns i think i saw a tweet from her today where she was talking about the lack of of, uh, consultation with local communities and she had to go back and clarify that she didn't mean asking local communities is it all right we bring these people here it it was clumsy Philip it was clumsy and and that's fair enough nobody gets everything right in politics I know Holly I like Holly right but what she meant was what we need to have is a dialogue not around the fact of should we bring these people here because let's face it Tony Ireland takes a shamefully low number of people seeking international protection I'll mention that statistic again for 2015 Sweden took in before it closed its borders 163,000 people how many people like that's that's more than the city of Waterford do you remember do you remember at that time and the Kenny was was Taoiseach and he pledged Ireland would do its part and stand ready to bring in Syrian refugees at the time and Ireland uh, 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 said it would take in 5,000 in the first year eight years later Ireland I think had taken in 1,700 this is the thing I actually I'm not even sure it was 5,000 I thought it was a lower number than that but this is what I'm saying like tiny tiny numbers but the problem is not the numbers the problem is not even mm. these people right the problem is the way that all of these things run is just are run is just back to front there should of course be consultation with local communities not from the perspective of do you want these people living here or not that's gone right that that they have to be put somewhere they have to be in some community the case it has to be made for okay what, how do we best serve the community? How do we best integrate people into the community? Because that also shows very, very quickly, Tony, who's interested and who's not, right? It also shows why, right? Because if you're coming out with this nonsense that people are coming out with, this unvetted military age male state, what essentially you're talking about there, and this, I never see this put in the newspapers because this is the one thing that Irish journalists and, uh, and editors seem to know. This is the great replacement theory, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unvetted military, this is it. But they won't call it that. 
Because if they call it that, they have to accept the fact that this is just conspiracy theory fucking bullshit, right? They may as well just write George Soros and everything and fucking throw in their NUJ cards because they're just going along with this nonsense, right? So once you get that out in the open, because again, I, I honestly believe that there are very, very few people at the heart of this, right? There's a few telegram groups pushing this. And what you have is you have certain people, I don't find them charismatic, but people who are scared after COVID, who lost employment opportunities, who saw family move abroad, whose homes are falling apart because building regulations in Ireland were a shite during the boom time. People who are in that state of fear find these people that you and I don't find charismatic, they find them very charismatic indeed. And fear is a powerful thing. And if yep. you keep feeding that fear, it gives them something to live for, right? Now, and that is a process of radicalization right there. So what we need to do as communities is we need to bring these people either bring them back in and say you have no need to be afraid. We're here as a community to help you just as much as we are to help them but we can't have an either or we can't have an us and them I, I have an interesting idea on that and um, I think this might be the first time I've spoken on air about it but I've, I've said it to other people before and I know it's not an ideal scenario and of course nothing you can't you know copy and paste something on top of it but I have an interesting idea Ireland is a is wash with money a wash with it we, we, we boast about it all the time the government doesn't get to boast about their GDP numbers and then pretend that they're poor mouthing when it comes to you know resources okay 25 years after the, after the Good Friday Agreement we have not fulfilled the promises of the Good Friday Agreement there has not been um, the peace dividend in many communities but what there has been is there has been less people murdered, less people killed, less less people injured and maimed and hurt and more less damage. And one of the reasons they did that is because they they put money into communities to have community officers, to have these sort of integration moments, to have these get-togethers, to have these, whether it's a tea with something like the likes of what Memema Ulada does, he goes to a community um, and he has a cup of tea with them. If the government was really serious about doing this and go to go back to what you're saying about Holly Cairn saying about engagement with the community, you have a community engagement officer. Let's do it. Let's have community engagement officers everywhere. Let's fund it to the point where they turn around and say, we're not just here to address the concerns of 18 men who've come in from, you know, six different countries. We're going to say, what what do you guys need to be able to, to, to do this? And let's and throw money at the problem because we, you know, we, we underspent a billion of our budget on housing. So we have the money. So I know it's not ideal as in terms of what I'm saying but every time I, I'm not being smart Philip but you know this to be true we're of a certain age a lot of people who were involved in the troubles became those community activists when when the when the ceasefire happened and they mm -hmm. became advocates for the community and you know and that's how they actually and when you see that person become that it figurehead become someone who's actually trying to talk about truth and reconciliation in the north it was powerful Let's do that when it comes to these situations because, final point on this, it's only going to become a more challenging issue as the world evolves into a climate catastrophe. So we need to get, we need to start this ball rolling now. Well, I think that's the thing. And one of the things I saw today that was like, you know, all of these things, you know yourself, Twitter has become such a fucking cesspit oh, lately. You know what I mean? This is the, and that's we're not even going to get onto you taking your shirt off every Sunday morning. No, but no. I was I was looking at uh, RT did an interview with uh, Pico Lopez who plays at the back for Shamrock Rovers, right? Lovely fella, despite the fact he plays for Shamrock Rovers, and he was talking about this. I think his on the hoops, Cape, Cape Verde. Yeah, exactly. He's super hoops, but um, he his family is from Cape Verde, and he 
was saying, look, you know, we're all the same under the under under the skin kind of thing, you know, and that this is sort of nonsensical. And I was looking at the RTE story, and then you're just looking at the, I think there was 33 comments when I read it, and about half of them was this usual bullshit, you know. And I just use them to block people now because I'm just fucking sick of listening to it. But when you have people like Pico coming out and saying things like that, right, because this is the antidote. I've said, you know, this week already that if you're waiting for the Irish government to step in on absolutely anything, you're wasting your time, right? They arrived, you know, uh, as we all arrived at, uh, at repeal the 8th, as we all arrived at, at um, uh, what do you call it? Dublin Castle. Equal marriage, yeah, and, and all these kinds of things that happened. They arrived last to the party, right? And it'll be the same thing here. And it has to be communities right it literally has to be now what i'd love to see is exactly what you're saying but in order to do that the government will have to open its poor strings for communities that they have honestly they've deliberately destroyed yeah, yeah. places in dublin and cork and limerick and that kind of thing right because what i like you know i've spoken to let, an awful lot let, of people let, here. let them decay and push the gentrification in yeah, exactly. But I mean, I, I spoke to so many people here over the years, Tony, uh, where they, they've been moved to, you know, I was only reading back over the stuff that I wrote 10 years ago about, about those riots. And, you know, people from Somalia who are being put way up in the north of Sweden, right, where there's no daylight for six months of the year and it's fucking freezing cold. And the idea was, we just want to make them go home. We just want to make them give up. We just don't want them here anymore. One of the pieces that I wrote um, uh, was about when we actually had a, ref- a refugee sort of we had a, a centre for them here in a local football club uh, at the height of the refugee crisis in 2015 and some of them eventually just they got so tired of the whole thing they just took you know a plane ticket back to Baghdad because they were just so tired you know and I remember telling the story of one man and we'd collected clothes and shoes and, and everything else like that and there was, a, there was a, a backpack like a rucksack there and the man as I said can I have that and one of his friends said to him, you know, they were translating for us, they were speaking Arabic. And his friend said to him, well, what do you want that for? What do you want a bag for? You fucking nothing to put in it, right? And I drove those men to the airport because they were so tired and they were just so worn out after making their way all the way from Iraq to Sweden and realising how badly they were going to be treated, how long it was going to take, all the lies that they had been told. He just wanted to go home to his family again. But if we are to see any improvement whatsoever, it's going to take... Everybody getting off their backside, as you mentioned, right? And going out and doing something now. And if that means going down to your local Gaelic football or hurling club and say, do you know what? I'm going to go up there in a minibus. I'm going to get a bunch of kids out of that centre. I'm going to bring them down here. I'm going to teach them these games, right? Or your basketball club. Or, you know, your Irish dancer. There are Irish villages, you know, like Spansel here, where it is Spansel Hill, where the young ones are all dead and gone. Sorry, the old ones are all dead and gone and the young ones moved away, Right. Ireland needs these people, right? However much some people say they don't want them, Ireland needs these people. I was out driving here about two weeks ago uh, from uh, uh, Stockholm, about two hours west of Stockholm, and I was driving through all these places, and I was seeing all these businesses that were started by people who'd moved here in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, people who'd left Syria, people who'd left Turkey, an awful lot of Kurdish people. There's a friend of mine has an eight-part comedy series that's absolutely brilliant about moving to the, the Stockholm equivalent to Balls Bridge, you know, as a Kurdish refugee kind of thing, because he won... Uh, like he won some sort of lottery ticket or something like that, you know? Yeah, and this yeah. is the thing that 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 in- integration is going to have to come from grassroots people. If this is to be sorted out in any way at all uh, for the benefit of people seeking international protection, I'm afraid it's going to have to come from grassroots. And just before, I know we're going to wrap up very, very uh, shortly, right? But I would say the people listening to this, the wonderful people listening to this who support the Tortoise Shack, right? Tonight, after you've listened to this or today after you've listened to this, Send this to a friend, right? I don't care if you haven't enjoyed my part for it all, but send it to them or send something to Tony and Martin have done in the last week and recommend to them that they join too, right? Because 
you're not going to hear this anywhere else, right? I either won't do this for anybody else or I just don't feel that I can do this for anybody else because they're not going to give me the time to talk about these things. So if you feel that what the Tortoise Shack does has value, give them the five or six euros a month so that they can keep going and uh, Tony can take all those kids down to Gaelic football pitch and take I off tell you, No, don't take off your the, the, plan, the plan is to bring a gang out swimming soon, but there you go. But look, what I will say is, Philip, you, look, thank you for your time. Thank you for all the, the for speaking about this for years and years and years. Even when people were wanted to talk to you about what's happening in you know in in Swedish politics, you were still talking about what what the underlying issues were, and you were right. And it's not a, I told you so. You were just right about where this was going. You called it out, and you called it out, and people didn't. People had decided it was easier not to listen. Um, and also, obviously, check out our man in Stockholm, uh, and and Philip has built his own little empire there. So that's terrific but one final comment you talked about fear being powerful if we scratch at it enough I believe and I keep saying this and not everybody buys it yet but I believe you will eventually if we scratch at it enough under there there's love it could be love of community it can be love of a sibling it could be love of family it could be love of whatever you're having yourself but if we can take love and, and replace replace it, use it to replace fear, that's how we will get people that are, have, we think we've kind of, you know, lost. Because we have lost, you know, we've all lost friends now that we, we can look at. And we, I know that with myself. But there is there is an element there whereby love is the thing that's more powerful. And I know that you know, this guy is so cheesy this evening. But I, but I genuinely believe it because if I didn't, I wouldn't keep doing this. And I know you would either, Philip, because we, we, we have to have the optimism for for humanity which to drive us on. So so look, that that's my last point. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me this evening. I've really enjoyed it. And I hope everybody has um, at least come away with an understanding that how we got here the uh, the the hydra that is actually we've let loose, and maybe the ways that we need to call it out, and how we do it at grassroots level. So so thank you, Philip. Thanks very much, Howdy. Listen, folks, we will leave it there. Um, we have we have another pod, two podcasts coming recordings scheduled for tomorrow. But you know what? There's th- there's got to be this one, and I think we're gonna keep focusing on the Karen Sugru one about how David Quinn tried to. Uh, successfully sued her as well so these are more important than than um me talk me talking about uh um the, the latest hairstyles so we'll, we'll just go with those for the next few days thanks very much talk to you soon take care bye bye tony and martin martin and tony speaking to interesting people only it's the echo chamber podcast subscribe